Welcome. You're listening to audio from Life Church in Chico, California. We're so glad that you're here. Life Church's mission is simply to connect people to Jesus. And you can find out more about our mission and who we are on our website at lifechurchchico.org. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing this study in the book of Ephesians on how to church, which I think it's, you know, we've turned it into a verb and leave that to Pastor Jeff. He loves doing that kind of stuff. So uh, how to run would be the subtitle. <laughs> how, how to do something that for us is literally hardwired into us when once we say yes to Jesus. The difficulty is, is a lot of our default settings aren't in any way aligned with what it is that it, it means to be the church or to interact as part of the community. And, and it's a struggle and maybe a lifelong struggle for, for a lot of us. And so what we've been trying to do over the last several weeks is unpack this amazing letter to the Ephesians and help you get a better grasp on how to church, how to be community, how to relate, how, how to be life to other people in community. Because as we've read, really, our connection and the level to which we connect, if every joint supplies, if every part does what it's intended to do, the results will be power. It'll be wonderful things. And that's why we do this thing called church. Uh, so again, happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I was struggling with, do I do a sermon on Father's Day about fathers, or do I just continue with the book of Ephesians? And I, as I read chapter four, I realized that uh, there is a powerful Father's Day message even in these verses that we're about to read. The task that Jesus came, of course, was to preach the gospel and the good news that salvation was found through him, that salvation was found in him as the Messiah. But when you read the Gospels, you notice that Jesus takes a lot of time describing his father. And a lot of his stories and his parables, he will talk about his father. In John chapter 5, he takes a, quite a bit of time to talk about his relationship with the father and how I am in the father and the father is in me and you're in me. And if you're in me, you're going to be with the father. And I heard a speaker say this years ago, that Jesus, one of his jobs, not only to save the world, was to help ensure that his father became your father. That through sin in our lives, we've been separated from God. And Jesus, of course, is that bridge that bridges humanity back with God. But Jesus didn't just say, hey, I want you to make it to heaven. He says, I, I want you to know my father. I want to connect you with the one who made you. And this was also one of Jesus' number one goals, was to create an image as well, to create a picture. And this is why he told these amazing stories. One very famous story that we all know is the story of the prodigal son, where this man had two sons. The younger son took his inheritance early and went off and squandered it, and then came to his senses and came back home. We say prodigal because prodigal is a word that we mean by someone who is, uh, does things in excess, that spends in excess, that gives away in excess too much. And so in reality, uh, Henry Nowen, who's now with the Lord, but uh, an amazing Catholic priest who wrote a lot of books, actually believes that it shouldn't be the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal father. Because it was the father that said, what do you want, son? I want my inheritance now, early. There you go. And then he, after he squandered it and spent it on things he shouldn't have, when he came to his senses, the father said, now here, here is a ring for your finger. Here's a robe for you. Here are sandals for your naked feet. And here's a party. Here's a celebration for your return. That's prodigal. And this is Jesus, once again, trying to paint this picture of who the father is. 
And the good news is that Jesus' Father is now our Father. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we start off with our Father, our Father. And so it's not just my Father who art in heaven, it's our Father. And this is what Jesus wanted. He wanted us to get a picture of the Father, but he also wanted it to be a community picture, that my dad is your dad. We come from the same, as they say in Russia, we're cut from the same block of wood. And so that's who we are. And this is what Jesus, and I believe Paul, was doing. Now, Paul was on a mission. We know that. We consider him one of the first missionaries. But in this letter, he was on a mission. He was trying to communicate something very important to the Gentiles and to the Jews in the Ephesus region, region, that whole area, part of Asia Minor. He was trying to get something to them. And this mission is explained in a lot of different ways. As an apostle, he was laying this foundation work that says, look, I want you to understand something about what I'm why I'm here. And back in chapter 3, and again, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to them. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and click to those verses, uh, and because they're not going to be on the screen, because Pastor Chris is a meanie. Hold on. Uh, the fact that we put the verses up there for you tends to cause you to leave your Bibles at home. I know, I know. So, the idea of what Paul was up to, and he's talking about it throughout this whole letter, but Pastor Fred talked about it last week, and and Lana talked about it. It's this amazing thing. In verse 9, he's talking about this mystery. Look, I, I want to make something known to you which has been hidden. Something that, up until this point, had been shrouded in mystery from generation. So Paul says, look, I'm that apostle. I'm going to share this with you. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, look, the intent of this being revealed right now is so that you realize you're part of the catalyst. You're part of what's going to make this happen, this gospel, what's going to reveal that this grace has been extended to the Jews, of course, but this grace is now extended to you, the Gentiles, and you're part of the solution in getting this gospel to the whole world. And Paul literally called himself an apostle to the Gentile. That this is my calling, is to make sure that you guys understand where you fit in this whole thing, this plan. And so he says, look, this incredible wisdom, verse 10, he talks about this manifold wisdom that it should be known to me, reveal it to you, so that the rulers and the authorities will understand the eternal purpose of the gospel. The gospel is supposed to permeate every part of life, not just religiously or spiritually. It's supposed to penetrate politically, medically, artistically, the rhetoric that the Greeks practiced, in which we would call modern-day law, it's supposed to permeate that because it becomes then the foundation by which human beings make their decisions about everything in life, everything that we do, this gospel regarding Jesus. And we are the vessels, Jews and Gentile. We are now going to declare this so that people can approach God so they can understand the God that they are approaching. And this is some of the stuff that we're talking about on Wednesday nights here in Foundations, is to help people change their lenses, the way that they view God, and put on new lenses and go, I've I've never seen God that way. I've never realized that's who he is. Yes, that's who he is. And that's what we do. Not just in what we say, but in how we act. And this is what Paul's trying to get across, how you act with each other and how you display the gospel at work in your lives is through unity. You're unified in what you believe. You're unified in what you do. 
And if this sermon had a title, it would be Unity, the Cause of Power and Purpose. That without power, the power of God, there's no sense of unity. We need God's intervention into our lives in order to unify us and make us one. And this was Paul's mission. Because if you look at chapter 3, he uses a phrase twice. In verse 1, he says this phrase, for this reason, which literally means, and for this very cause, I am telling you the following, or this is my mission. And then in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says the same thing. For this reason, for this cause, this oneness, this power of unification of Gentiles and Jews working together with the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of them, for this cause, for this purpose, I fall down on my knees and I pray. And this is what Pastor Fred went into last week, that they could grasp this power, and that humanity has attempted to dilute that power. This is one of the major points that Pastor Fred was talking about. We've attempted to say, well, no, we, we don't need that. That's gone. That, that, that's no longer necessary. I don't think so. In fact, we cannot carry out the power that's found in the Word without that power of the Spirit. They go hand in hand. I, I need it. I, I mean, or else I'm just reciting things to you that are in my head. Hey, here's some information. Take this. But sh- shared knowledge that's filled with the Spirit transforms people. Because it's laced, if you will. That's a proper term. It's laced with the Spirit. It's got God all over it. And so that the intention is that it, it, it affects people at, a, at, a, at the core of their being. And so Paul also goes on in verse 20, says that, look, this power is at work in us. I mean that it's always germinating, doing things, sprouting things, stirring things. This power that he's been talking about is at work in us. It's at work in you right now. Yeah. When you were worshiping and Tyson let off on that first song and you had this inclination to do this, that's God at work. And then when I said, hey, why don't you really take the time to listen? And we sang this beautiful song. Well, why don't we right now go? God is at work to bring things to your remembrance and to show you things. This isn't an accident or just intuition. This is God at work. And this is what Paul was, I think is interesting. Paul says, for this very reason, this is so important, it's why I literally fall on my knees and pray. Can you see that? Get that picture of your, in your head of Paul literally down on his hands and knees, crying out that the Ephesians would get this, that they would grasp this. Because if they did, it would change the world. If they didn't, nothing would happen. And so this is Paul. It's like, I'm I'm laying this foundation. So up to this point, all the way to the end of chapter 3, as he does what an apostle does, he's laying this foundation so that you and I would then build on it. See, that's what the purpose of teaching is. It's to give you information so that when you walk out of here, you construct something on top of it. And this is why Jesus says, The person who hears my word but doesn't act on it is like the person who builds his house on what? Sand. But the person who takes my word, does something with it, is the person that builds his house on a rock. So we can get all this great information through Bible studies and podcasts and sermons, but if we don't build on it, we don't do something with it, rather, then it's like building on sand. Because when the storms come, and they will, it says great will be the destruction of that ideology. And that's what's happening in the world today, you guys. When crisis hits human beings, their number one thing is to say, well, who do I listen to? Who do I trust? 
That's the reason that all these websites and podcasts and news channels stay alive is because human beings are saying, tell me something that will help me get through this crisis. Gasoline is now almost $7 a gallon. Somebody give me, tell me why it's happening, who's to blame, and what we can do about it. Whereas our foundation is built on what? God, what would you have me do? Yes, I'm going to take in consideration all these opinions. But in the end, is there a number that you can call that says, hey, I'm tired of paying all this money for gasoline. Can you please take care of it? I wish there was. But in that frustration, people are looking to something that they can hope in. It's called the gospel of Jesus. It's called the relationship with Jesus. When the storms come, and they will, if you've built your hope on the ideology or the promises of a simple human being like me, people will come to me <laughs> ask me the most interesting questions. Pastor Chris, I got an inheritance. Where should I invest it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> gold. Buy gold. People always say buy gold. Pastor Chris, I need to get insurance. What kind of insurance should I get? The good kind is what I say, you know? It, you know, because that's who we are as people. And I get that. We're looking for wisdom. And I do that. I ask around before I make major decisions. But we can't do that with everything. We have to go to this foundation that's found built on the things that Jesus said. So this is what Paul is saying. He's, look, he's laying this foundation. Then he uses, again, this key word, verse 1 of chapter 4, says, therefore. Now, what I'm going to do right now, some, most of you have NIV Bibles if you're using the Bibles that are, are there underneath your chair. Uh, or you can uh, look on your phone and you can pick different translations. I happen to be reading from the New American Standard in these verses because I think there's some key words that the, the NIV Bible doesn't stress. Not that the NIV is in any way a bad translation. It's a wonderful translation. But I think the New American Standard uh, highlights some words that I want to capitalize on this morning. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all, who is over all and through all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's stop there. Paul does something interesting here, and it's not a manipulative thing that he's doing. He's just trying to set context. He says, therefore, as someone who right now is suffering for this cause, that's how important it is. What I'm talking about is a matter of life and death. What I'm talking about is the real deal. As someone who is literally in prison as a result of this cause, I am asking you, I am urging you to do something. I mean, that causes you to go, wow, this is pretty real. He's not just in prison because he was arrogant or he ticked somebody off, you know, in high places. He's there because of the same hopeful calling that we ourselves possess. So he says, look, as a person who is suffering for this cause, listen to me is what he's saying. I make a personal and intimate appeal because how it reads here, it says, I urge you. I urge you. It's, I can urge you through a text message, say I need help, and you probably help me. But if I showed up at Brian's front door at 9 o'clock at night, and he opened the door and I said, I need something, I think he would take it differently than a text message, right? This is what Paul is doing. He says, look, I am asking something of you. This is very important. It's an intimate appeal. 
I am asking you to do something. Well, what's he asking? I am asking you, as a result of all this, again, for this reason, for this cause, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. To walk, to conduct your life. This is interesting Greek word, which is, means, a fancy word is circumspectly, but is to conduct your life, to be prudent with how you conduct your life, how you walk. In other words, this walk that matches what you value. I am asking you, urging you, I am imploring you from this point forward now to walk in a way that matches what you believe in value. I mean, that's something that we should be doing anyway, right? Okay? But it's very difficult for us as human beings. I do this with people all the time that you find their lives kind of out of order and kind of chaotic. I say, make a list of all the things that you value and consider the most important things in your life. And then I want you to do a Monday through Friday calendar, and I want you to hourly write down at 8 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock in the morning, what did you do for that last hour? So from 8 to 9, I did this. 9 to 10, I did this. And then at the end of the week, I want you to add up the hours of the things that you did and see how many of those hours were invested in the thing that you value. So let's say the number one thing that people value is usually family, right? So at the end of a week, you add up all those hours. Okay, how many hours did I spend with family? And if it's only three hours, that's where you go, oh, I have not been walking in a manner worthy of being a dad. If, as a dad, my value is my children and my time audit shows that I only spent a couple of hours with them for a five-day period, then I'd say, I have not been walking in a manner worthy of the title of dad. Now, granted, I imagine if there's a deadline at work or you work out of town, please, I'm talking about just regular normal circumstance. Because it's eye-opening. It causes us to go, I guess I have not been walking circumspectly. And this is why Paul is saying, look, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what have you been called to do? Bring the gospel to the world. Not only bring the gospel, but I'm supposed to be hanging out with you, the community. This is what Paul is talking about. Jews and Gentiles spending time together, working together to accomplish this amazing path, this amazing plan. And when you do walk that way, in that manner that you're supposed to walk, verse 2 says, do it with Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? Humility speaks for itself. That's where I make the needs of others more important than my own. Or I value people's opinion just as much as I value my own opinion. I may not agree with it, but I don't downgrade the person because they disagree with me. That's humility. Gentleness is also the word we use for meekness. And meekness is not a weak thing. When a horse is controlled by two light touches of leather straps on the side of its face, and just with a slight brush of this, the horse knows which way to turn, that horse is considered meek. Because it's this powerful horse. How many of you have ever ridden a horse? Those things are powerful. But it isn't amazing that something that powerful with just a slight touch of the rain knows which way to go. That's called gentleness or meekness. And that's power under control. So Paul says, like, when you're walking, you do this with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And this is that word in the King James called long-suffering, and it speaks for itself. Suffering, long. Parents, you know what it means. It's the number one lesson we learn as moms and dads is long-suffering, patience, forbearance is another word. And then it says, all of this, (laughs) 
bearing with one another. Now, that seems like a harsh word, but it actually literally means that, putting up with one another in a good way. That says, yeah, you're different, and you can be a pain in the neck, but you know what? So can I. So let's just endure this together in love, in love. Think about the guy in the Gospels, Thomas. What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. Well, how would you like to live with that your whole life? You know? Hey, Thomas, the doubter. Doubter. Hey. But he still was one of the 12, wasn't he? He was the one that says, unless I see his, the holes in his hands and the, the hole in his side, I won't believe. And then poof, Jesus shows up. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's you. That's who we are, folks. This is who we are. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times, even to the point where he used profanity to push the people away. I don't know him. Jesus, at the end, said to him, hey, Peter, you who denied me three times, take care of me. That's called forbearance and bearing with one another. So this whole thing of being diligent to, to bear with one another is important because it says, look, if you can do those things, verse 3, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This attitude that we, have, we take on in community, that Paul's saying, walk in a way by which, walk in a way that will honor the calling that's on your life. Do these things, and the end result will be is that you will guard and watch over the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this is the thing that binds us. That says the most important thing to me as a Christian and a believer in community with you is that we are in unity, that we are unified in our purpose, and that it's something that creates this bond that cannot be broken. It's a covenant that we make with one another because of him. It's not an agreement about methodology and how we do things. It's an agreement on who he is and what he's called us to. And that takes work. It just does, folks. It's not something instantaneous. But this is why we do things like Life Tracks and Life Tracks 2.0 and Life Groups and Meet Needs. We're trying to gather each other together so that we can practice these things and work out the kinks, work out the glitches that operate inside of every single one of us. And so Paul does not leave these people just to kind of figure it out on their own. Like, okay. I'll guard the unity and the bond of peace. I'll walk in gentleness. I get it. But then Paul says this. I'm going to describe what unity looks like. And he goes on in verse 4. And you can put up that first slide. Verse 4, he says, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now, why does he mention those nine things? Or is it seven? Two, four, six, seven. Those seven things. What is that all about? Because here's the thing. It is very difficult for us opinionated people to agree on things. It just is. I mean, we can have disagreements about anything from where's the best place to get coffee in Chico, right? Or me being Mexican-American, people say, I want to take you to this great Mexican place. They give me the name and I go, yeah, no, that's not Mexican. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just us as human beings. But Paul was not saying, yeah, just kind of figure out what's the best way to do this. No, he says, okay, I'm going to give you some things to understand what I mean by what you're unified through and in and by. One body, literally going back to chapter three, remember where he says, look, you Gentiles are now co-heirs. You're heirs and members of the hope, of the promise. You're no longer unclean, uncircumcised pagans, outsiders. You are now literally bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so Paul says, look, we have one body. There is no more Jew or Gentile. We're just one body, period. 
and we have one spirit. Now, again, at that time, there's a lot of speculation about where spirituality came from. And that's why there was still a lot of worshiping of the gods, especially among the Gentiles. And the way that Paul dealt with that is saying, look, no, there is no Athena. There is no Zeus. There's none of those things. There's only one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And so for how does that apply to us today? There is no astrology. I mean, yes, there are people that look up their astrological things and, oh, I'm a this or I'm a this. Okay. But in the end, there's only one thing we rally around, and that's the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Because Jesus said the job of the Holy Spirit is to lead us and guide us into all truth. That's his job description. The Holy Spirit's job description is to remind us of the things that Jesus did and to lead us and guide us into all truth. So there's just one Spirit. There's one calling. Now, understand this is not vocation. We all have different jobs and different ministries. Paul's actually going to get into that in a minute. But what it says, by one calling, it's literally, there is one way by which we communicate this hope to the world. The hope in the world is to follow Jesus, not become a vegan. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, we, you know. It's, uh, I'll never forget, we were praying for this guy that had really, really bad eyesight. And we were praying over this guy, and God was just moving on this guy. And finally, this, this man makes his way forth and says, I have something to say to this man. I thought, wow, he's going to pray for him. He's going to lay hands on him. He says, carrot juice. You just need to drink more carrot juice. And just starts going into this whole thing about carrot juice. So that's where the humility and the gentleness had to kick in with Chris here. It's like, hey, man, thanks for that. Why don't you go stand over here? So. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's one calling. In the end, there's just one way to, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but for me, that's the way to life. One Lord literally is tough because remember, they lived in a polytheistic world. They lived in a world where there were many lower G gods. There was all kinds of gods. And so he's saying, no, look, there's only one Lord. But especially, this was a slap in the face to Caesar. You have to understand, all these people were ruled by the Romans, right? And so, if you remember your history, Caesar saw himself as what? As the savior of the world. Caesar viewed himself as a demigod, and that there was salvation through Caesar. And so that's why Paul says, and one Lord. And he didn't have to go on and say, you know, Caesar's a punk, forget about him. He literally said, no, there's just one Lord. One faith. Again, understand there were a lot of different, the, the Greek word here is pistis, which means to literally, who do you entrust your spiritual life to? And again, there are all kinds of religions and philosophies. And that's why he says, no, one faith in Jesus Christ alone. One baptism. Now, baptism was evolving at that place because baptism was allowed in the Jewish faith before Christ. People were being baptized. John the Baptist, right? So it wasn't a foreign concept, but this one was holistic. The baptism that Paul is talking about and the one that Jesus inaugurated was literally when you go under, baptism comes from the Greek word to immerse, when you immerse that person and they come up, their old person is left behind and there's this transformed person that comes up. One baptism. This is what it does. Because there were a lot of different kinds of baptism. And one Father God. You see, we can call this the, the little parenthetical Father's Day message today. I think it's interesting that Paul went out of his way to include this word father. He could have just said one God, which would have been right. Hebrews believe that, you know, Jehovah God was God of gods, king of the universe. But he said one God and father. What does that mean? The gods at that time were very fickle and very separated. They lived on Mount Olympus or wherever it was, and they were fickle and they were broody and they would come in, and they would do, they'd punish us, and, you know, Loki would come and do his thing, or whatever it is. Okay, but that was a little bit for you Marvel Avenger people. You know what I'm talking about. 
or Thor or whatever it was. Here's what's interesting. Paul is saying, this is a father who will bother you, not betray you, not be fickle, not be a part-time God in your life. One God and Father, patera, where we get paternity, where we get, this is one Father, our Father who art in heaven. This is this gathering God. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, see, the thing is, if you and I just built our Christianity on these things, this is all we talked about, studied, what do you think would happen to us? Well, I think we'd be transformed. There'd be very little room for argument. There'd be very little room for debate because these are just so straightforward. The challenge is not so much in the message, but in the methodology. This is where, we, where the wheels come off. Because then we start to argue about how we do it. This is Well, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. There are those that baptize infants and sprinkle them. Yeah, I'm not going down that path. I grew up in that. I was sprinkled when I was a baby as a Catholic. And when I went to go get baptized as an adult, my poor parents just wept. And their number one thing is like, what will your godparents say? I said, well, hopefully they'll be so happy that I'm following Jesus, you know? But this is the great leveler. Paul is saying, look, I want you to get something. These are the things that we're unified over. And these are the things that we're supposed to focus on. These are the things that are bigger than us. These are the things that are more grand than us. These are the things that are sacred to us. And all of a sudden, it becomes your value system. Therefore, you walk circumspectly with these, these and functioning in your mind. And you're doing it with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, all those things. I want to say something about unity, though. Understand I'm not talking about uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is like where we all dress the same, act the same, and there are denominations and religious uh, organizations that practice uniformity. It's very closed. Either you do these things or you're out. You can, can't come in. There are churches in this community that if you walked in with a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, they'd let you in. But as you were exiting that morning, they'd say, when you come back next week, you need to have a shirt and tie. Because that's uniformity for them. They're like, no, here you must do these things or you can't be a part of it. That's not unity. And Paul goes on to say something I think is profound when he says, verse 7, each one of us, a grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's this grace that's given in a measure. Literally, it's the the concept of a certain allotment is like, here you go. This one is yours. And each one of us is, is there with this gift, this measurement of grace that's been given to us. Now, the tendency is to go, what do you got, Jeremy? You got more than me, or, or, or I got more than you. That's not what it is. It's like, this is the allotment by which you are now going to change the community. Use it well. It's different. And that's what unity is. Unity takes something and says, yeah, we all have the same gift, but it's diversity at the same time. It shows up in different ways. It manifests itself as according to God's desire. And Paul talks about that back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 when he talks about this inheritance that we've been given by Jesus that was purchased for us when he died on the cross, this gift that you've been given is something precious that was ensured to you because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. I use this illustration as well as we're building this thing called Christianity, this, this temple, if you will, and we're working in different quarries. You're in one quarry, and I'm in a different quarry, and God says, okay, you know, here's your assignment. Here's this chunk of wood. Now just carve it. What's Joe doing? It doesn't matter what he's doing. Just do what I've told you to do, and I labor, and I strive, and I go, well, that's it. Yeah. And then the master builder comes along and takes your chunk of stone and takes somebody else's chunk of stone from a different quarry and then puts it together 
and you're amazed. Look at that. And then somewhere in this beautiful edifice, you go, there, that's my stone. That's the one I worked on. That's how it is. And then we realized that all of our labor, though nobody saw us doing it, and we didn't write a famous book, and we, you know, on and on, we did what the Lord told us to do, but it created something beautiful. That's what this is all about at Life Church. That this church will be something beautiful in the eyes of the Lord, because each one of us takes the measure that we're given and just works on it. And then he comes along and takes what you've been doing and you've been doing, puts it together, and boom, we go, oh, look at that. Yeah, that's the way it works. And God assembles it. Now, Paul seems to kind of go off on this weird tangent. Keep track of the time here. He goes on this weird tangent in verse 8 when he says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives and gave gifts to people. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fulfill all things. This is Paul taking Psalm 68 and kind of just throwing it in there. And you think, well, what in the world is that all about? This is a psalm of victory, that when the king does what he came to do and conquers the enemy, he takes the spoils of everything that was gathered as a result of his victory, and he gives them out to those who participated. And so Jesus is saying, look, I've conquered sin and death. Now, get what, now, now guess what you get to do? Because it no longer is in the way. It no longer is going to hinder you. That which God intended you to have, that the enemy held, when I beat him on the cross, this is what you get. And so he goes, and as a result of this amazing thing, I am going to give these gifts to the body of Christ. Now look what it says here. It says, what are these gifts? Verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Look, I've put these people organically into the community to create something. So apostles are like Paul. They're laying a foundation. Prophets are the visionaries. They see what is possible or they see what God is doing or will be doing. Evangelists are the oracles of the community. They're the ones that are sending out that clarion call to all those who would hear, all those who have ears to hear this powerful message about Jesus Christ. And then shepherds. We call these the gather coaches, the gatherers, the coaches, the ones that take those that come in and say, okay, come here, everybody. We're going to make you part of the team. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And you're going to do this. They're the coaches, the shepherds. And then the teachers, they're the instructors to help the community understand more about this amazing eternal message. And so these offices, some people call them the fivefold ministry, their offices are there to accomplish what? Look what it says here. It says, these gifts are given, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Then put that, yeah, so we got that up there. Yeah, I put them all in there. So the building up of the body of Christ. So these guys come in and they equip the saints. This word equip literally means to mend and prepare and make ready. We've been jerked around by the world. Our own personal life history is full of a lot of sad stories where we were abused, misled. We have self-inflicted wounds, all kinds of things. These ministries come along and they mend us. It comes from the same word that they use if you were to take a fishing net. And if it was ripped, you can no longer catch fish. So these nets are equipped or mended. This is the same concept that these, these fivefold ministers come along and they equip the saints. Why? For the work of ministry. The work of ministry. And you're like, no, I'm not supposed to be a minister. I'm not supposed to be a pastor. That's not what it's saying. It's the, the, word, the, 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 the word work is where we get the word energy, ergos, ergon. It's where you take that measure that it's talking about and says, 
Now I'm going to give you the capacity to do the thing that I've called you to do. And that's why we shouldn't be scared when we're in our life track classes. At the end, we say, hey, we want to put you on a life team somewhere where you are then taking this amazing gift that you've been giving it, been given and giving it away to others. And then number three, these five-fold ministers are supposed to come along and build up the body, literally construct the body. This is a construction word, literally means to build, to take something that has a foundation and then begin to do it. And it says growing up, this this, uh, establishment of something that didn't exist before. Well, why? Why do, these, why do these fivefold ministers come along? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up to the body. But also, the question is, well, how long do we do this thing called church, where these people come along and equip us and train us and mend us? Well, Paul says, look, this is going to happen, verse 13, until, <laughs> until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We can put that other, there it is. The purpose or the goal that, that, is, that this equipping does is so that you and I attain, arrive, grow up to this place of unity in our faith. This is our goal, because once we achieve that unity, and are then using our gifts as God intended, great power and purpose will consume us as a community. It will literally take over because we're all doing what we were eternally from the foundations of the world designed to do. And when we do that, we will attain the unity of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's so much to know about Jesus and so much that we think we know that is really wrong. People will say to me, well, I'm doing this because of this. One of the first things I say was, who told you that? Where, where did you hear that? Well, you know, it's just the way it is. God helps those that help themselves. Really? Where? I don't, what verse? Where did you find that? There is this seduction that takes place on us as people that we have to change. And the way that we do that is we gather together in unity and understand who Jesus really is, so that we become mature. Now, this is an interesting thing. This thing, maturity, is to grow up as a child would grow up into an adult. So we grow up, going back to the first slide there, we grow up, we become mature in our mind, in our spirit, and in our body. We grow up, which means it is a process. It's not a one-and-done thing. We grow up into this thing, which means that one day we'll make a little growth and then some days we'll go backwards. And it's just that whole thing. How many of you have, as adults have at times acted immature because somebody pushed your button? You don't have to raise your hand. But that's the point. The point is, is that when that happens, you go, oh, I'm such a sinner. It's like, no, you just need to grow up. There's more maturity. And so the way that you do that is you get involved in the community and let those people with their gifts have at you. But I'm a very private person. Then you probably won't grow up. Okay, I'm going on a limb here. If your only sense of unity and fellowship is found in what you watch or listen to by yourself in your room, that's a dangerous place to be. Now, granted, there are some that need to be because of health issues. My parents are one of them. Because of their health issues, they just really can't get out. I'm talking about that willful thing, as, uh, as somebody once said to me, oh, Pastor Chris, I just don't do people. Where did you hear that? Who told you that? Where, where did Jesus say that? You see, that's where we, we don't judge. We just go, help me understand how that even applies. If you read the totality of the message of the gospel, where did that come from? The ultimate goal. The very last slide is this, that we represent Christ in his fullness. That when we're together and we do what we've been called to do, we grow up, 
the world will see Jesus as he ought to be seen. Because we're growing up. We're, we're doing what we're called to do. We're one in our, in our perception. We're unified. And there's power and purpose in that. And then the end result is that people will say, oh, that's what I've been looking for, or that's the answer to my question. I have a dear person that I love so much that used to be so involved in church, but has just chosen. They were hurt for a lot of different reasons. And when I start talking about the Lord or my, my faith or whatever, they just start going off on the church. The church is this, and they hurt me, and they wounded me. I was like, yeah, you know, you're probably right. I just have a question now. What are you going to do with Jesus? What, what are you going to do with the things that he said? And what are you going to do with the claim he has on your life? And, oh, yeah, I'm still working on that. Because they, out of hurt, they've disassociated from the life source. And we've got to fix both. I'm not saying that they're wrong and the church is right. I'm just saying, in order for the church to be that healing process, there's a lot of work that needs to take place. But it starts with us. See, And so we go back and we look at these verses again, and I would encourage you to do that. That we would reevaluate the things that we consider our values, and that we walk circumspectly. We walk in a way that values what we believe. And that's my homework assignment that you begin to look at that and how you conduct your life and your business and your conversation and the way that you treat others and on and on and how you function here will transform this church that will then represent Christ in its fullness to the world. Amen? Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now that you, Lord, would fill us with the fullness of that power. Lord, this is a painful process. And we don't want to be immature. We don't want to be like children, as Paul goes on to say in verse 14. But instead, Lord, we want to grow up and be grown in such a way that the whole body, choose Gentiles, people of different walks of life, that we're fitted and held together by your Spirit and that we represent you in your fullness to the world. Lord, only you can do that. And so we now walk in the grace of that power. And we allow ourselves to be mended and equipped for the work of ministry. We trust you to do it, Lord. Now speak to us this week and help us, Lord, to make those decisions that will transform us and others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you'd like some prayer, if some of the things that I said today or happened to you in worship cause you to need to talk with somebody. I'm up here. Kelly's up here. We'd love to pray for you. Go in peace. Thank you for listening today. We hope that this week's message encouraged you. Life Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. here in Chico, California. You can also listen to us online during our 9 a.m. live stream. We would love the opportunity to connect with you, so please visit our website, lifechurchchico.org.